I'd like to welcome you all to this UCL Lunch Hour Lecture. Uh, my name is Anne McMahon. I'm the Head of Department of um, Epidemiology and Public Health. And I'm delighted to be able to introduce Professor Jenny Mindell, who's been a long-term and very valued member of the department. Um, not only does she run the Health Survey for England, which is the Department of Health's um, sort of main vehicle for monitoring the health of the nation, but she's also an international expert in transport and health, among other things. Um, she uh, is the editor-in-chief of the flagship journal in this area, Transport and Health, and she leads on transport and health for the Faculty of Public Health um, as well. So she's going to be telling us about um, some of her work in this area. So I'll hand over to you, Jenny. Good afternoon. I'm going to be uh, talking about four things in, in the next just over half an hour. Uh, an overview of transport health and inequalities, then some work on road travel fatality rates in England, very, very uh, short item on community segments or the barrier effect of busy roads. And then uh, a little work that we did on the walking speed of older people, which is the only time I've managed to combine both halves of my research into one project. So starting with this overview of how transport affects health and inequalities, it's important to start with being positive, because too often we talk about the negative effects of transport on health. But transport does have many benefits. Uh, it provides access to all sorts of places and people that are important for health, it's opportunity for physical activity, and it gives access to green and blue spaces which are good particularly for our mental health. Transport access to goods, services and, and people that are crucial uh, for health because most of our health is determined uh, not by healthcare but by uh, what we call the social determinants of health, of which transport is one, but so is employment, so is education. We need access to shops, to health and other services, to our social support networks, uh, formal, informal, the sort of people you might just uh, greet as acquaintances in the street. And of course, travel not only gives you access to recreation, but you can travel for recreation. Now, the health benefits of walking and cycling are the same, whether you're doing it for leisure or for travel. Obviously, in the context of today's talk, I'm talking about travel, but it's important to note that walking and cycling for travel can provide the same health benefits as formal sports or other exercise. It can increase fitness and it can be as effective as a formal training program. And walking and cycling for travel can fulfill the recommendations of at least 150 minutes a week of moderate intensity activity. And this is important because nearly two-fifths of the adult population in England aren't sufficiently active. Uh, in the health survey for England in 2016, we don't measure uh, activity every year, 34% uh, of men and 42% of women didn't meet those recommendations. So I've mentioned the uh, benefits, but there are also many harms. Sedentary behaviour is associated with use of motor vehicles, although public transport is often called active, considered with active travel, as most people will walk or cycle at least one, if not both ends, of a public transit, transport journey. Motor vehicles emit air pollution, uh, not just from the engine, so even with electric vehicles, brakes and tyres release particulates. There are carbon dioxide emissions, CO2 is an important global uh, important greenhouse gas that contributes to global warming. Uh, I'll come back to noise and the others on this list later. So I've mentioned physical activity and I'll be mentioning it again, but it's important partly because we have this obesity epidemic. Almost everywhere in the world, England has amongst the worst in Europe, if not the worst. The bottom two lines uh, red for women and blue for men, more or less the same nowadays. This is generalised obesity, it depends on your weight and height, and these are measured, this isn't 
that's what people say, because funnily enough, people tend to overestimate their height and underestimate their weight. Quite extraordinary. Anyway, uh, so it's increasing more slowly than it was, but it's still high. These top lines, men, sorry, men and women, oops, are central or abdominal obesity. It depends on your waist circumference being uh, beyond a particular threshold. And this is particularly important because it's more closely related to the risk of developing diabetes or heart disease, for example, than the generalized obesity. And obesity is important. It causes at least 9,000 early deaths each year in England, probably more than that now. Each of those people loses an average of nine years of life, and it costs the country £5 billion, healthcare, social care, uh, and uh, all sorts of other things related to work not done, and, and so on. Air pollution either causes or exacerbates asthma, other respiratory disease, heart attacks, stroke, and lung cancer. We've known about this for a long time. More recently, there's become good evidence that air pollution also contributes to obesity and to dementia. Now, many of the 7 million deaths worldwide each year from air pollution have nothing to do with traffic. But uh, motor vehicles are, in most countries, a very significant and sometimes the most important source of uh, emissions of air pollution. And it's also, uh, so in this country, CO2 emissions are the only, from transport, is the only area where it's increasing. It's increasing both in absolute terms and in relative terms because all the others are, the other sources of CO2 are falling. And this chart shows the CO2 emissions per kilometre travelled per, uh, per traveller. So it's minimal for walking and cycling at the top here. Train and bus is somewhat more. Uh, cars and, of course, plane is by far the worst. Noise is very important. It puts up your blood pressure and therefore your risk of heart disease and strokes. It interferes with sleep and concentration, which is particularly important for your mental well-being, but also affects your physical health. And it disrupts education. Uh, one study done in a, a school near Heathrow found that the children on the noisy side of the school, who were otherwise the same, uh, did much worse in their tests than the children on the quieter side. And education is particularly important because it's one of the most important, if not the most important, factors affecting your health uh, as an adult and particularly in later life. Now, cars are a very strange thing. If you parked your fridge, your dog kennel, your bookshelf, your settee on a public space at the side of the road, it would be viewed as weird. But to leave the car that you own on the road is considered normal. And tarmac is very bad for our health. First, because it replaces greenery and green streets encourage people to walk and seeing greenery is good for your mental health. But also because of the heat island effect that cities tend to be considerably warmer, uh, which you might think is good if it's cold, but when it's hot you can have major problems. And then there's the runoff, the contamination, all the metals from the exhaust fumes that can't, uh, that contaminate the water and are involved in the runoff. And this isn't just a minor problem. In Los Angeles, a third of the land area is devoted to roads and a third of the land area to car park. Many of these factors about the benefits and the adverse impacts of health also affect health inequalities. If cities are planned, or even the uh, same applies to rural areas, if places are planned assuming that people will be travelling by car, then if you don't have a car, you may have difficulty getting there. If to get to the hospital on the top of a hill takes three buses and you've got to drop children off at school first, uh, you might not make your nine o'clock appointment. 
poorer people tend to have less access and make fewer trips. And they tend to have more negative impacts and to a greater extent. Young and old have less access to cars in general. Women have less access to cars in general. Girls are allowed less independent mobility. And there's also inequalities between, as well as within countries, particularly, for example, the impact of global climate change, not only the extreme weather events and the health damage that they, they cause, but it affects primarily the countries that aren't producing the CO2. Air pollution is a very good example of health inequalities. If you can afford to live somewhere where it's not uh, like these pictures of, of uh, vehicles emitting clouds of uh, stuff, you don't live there. So it's poorer people, more deprived areas that tend to have much higher exposure to air pollution. But these are also the people who tend to be much more susceptible to the health impacts because air pollution affects particularly people who already have respiratory or circulatory problems. And that's much more common in poorer communities and in the old and the young. The good thing is if you can reduce air pollution, you can help reduce health inequalities. So I'm now going to talk about the first of these three research projects and look at variations by age, gender and travel road in road travel fatalities. I've already mentioned the benefits of walking and cycling in terms of physical activity and health, but there are also other benefits in terms of travel. It's much more age independent than, for example, driving. It's more affordable. It can give you door-to-door -door access. You don't um, pollute other people's air, and the concentration of air pollution to which you're exposed is less than if you're inside a vehicle. It's flexible. You go when you want, not when the timetable says. It's good for mental as well as physical health. And it's good for society as well as the individual. Increasing active travel in England and Wales has been estimated to save the NHS £17 billion a year in healthcare costs. In New Zealand, if you increased active travel to the across the whole country to the level of the city with the highest level, it would prevent 1,300 deaths every year. And this is in a total population of 4.5 million. There's also the broader environmental benefits, and quite often it's quicker, particularly somewhere like central London, which is so congested. But people don't cycle because it's perceived as unsafe in many countries. Now, road deaths from any travel mode have fallen sharply and um, have almost halved in this country, been more static recently. However, there are still over 138,000 slight injuries, almost 25,000 serious injuries, and 1,770 fatalities uh, in 2017-18 in Great Britain. And that comes to five deaths and 68 serious injuries on average every day. But most people are rather surprised by that. Injured cyclists have very high visibility. Uh, this Times front page shows a cyclist who was unfortunately very seriously injured. She was a journalist working for the Times. But the media and doctors working in accident and emergency departments don't notice people who are patients because they're inactive. If somebody comes in with a heart attack or a stroke, they don't say, ah, oh, this person's here because they don't cycle or because they don't walk. Likewise, uh, the media and the doctors don't recognise uh, people like these friends of mine in their 80s who are regular cyclists, uh, generally quite healthy, and don't appear in, in front of uh, the doctors. So we've done this work previously showing that the variations by age, gender and travel mode, um, and we wanted to see whether, given that deaths have halved, has everybody benefited and do we find the same thing? So we tried to do this like-for-like like comparison, uh, which was published a year ago in this wonderful journal. Uh, so acknowledging my co-authors, Rebel Falecki, uh, Malcolm Wardlaw, Sean Stoles, and also Sam Dickinson from the Department for Transport, 
National Travel Survey Team. So for the exposure, we used the National Travel Survey and from that we got how far people travelled by the different modes and how much time they spent by different modes by age group and gender. For the number of deaths, we use national mortality data, except for driving, we use police data. And this study is England 2007 to 2012. Now, because road travel injuries are defined as involving a vehicle, we also included pedestrian falls where the code was clear that it was a fall in the street, not somewhere else or uncoded. Because if you crash your car into a tree, no other vehicle involved. If you fall off a bicycle, it's included, and pedestrian falls uh, seemed analogous and should be included if we're trying to make this like-for-like -like comparison. Now, these three charts, I'll take you through each of them, are showing the death rates per million hours spent travelling by that travel mode. Along the uh, bottom axis here, we've, we've got the age group. And here, up to three, is deaths per million hours travelled. So you can see for cycling, and this is for men, these three charts, you can see that for cycling, it's pretty constant until you get to the 70 to 74 age group where it starts rising dramatically. And for walking in green, we have the same sort of J-shaped pattern uh, where, again, in the late 70s, it starts increasing dramatically. Now, driving is different. For driving... It's a U-shape, with the youngest males, aged, say, 17 to 25, having similar mortality to uh, the men aged 80 and over. This chart is those three charts superimposed, but with the oldest people left off this chart, um, so that I can have a, a, a bigger scale here, and you can see the differences. So here... The cyclists in blue do have slightly higher death rates than the pedestrians, although for many age groups, actually, they overlap. These bars give us how certain, how certain we are that the true value lies somewhere between those, those values. Um, yes, yeah, so from the National Travel Survey, a random sample of the general population that's nationally representative, uh, filled reported on their travel for a few days and from that uh, you can calculate that if everybody in the country did the same as these people on average then males are aged 30 to 34 would have traveled this amount by bike in a year and this amount on foot in a year and so on so it's it's the actual amounts um, traveled by the people who answered the survey, who were nationally, and it was a nationally representative sample, and then it's been scaled up for the whole population. But it's yes, it's not studying particular people and finding out because these events are so rare that you'd have to st study almost the whole population in order to get these figures where you had the same people, the uh, same people providing the exposure rate as the actual deaths. Okay. Um, so what you can see from here is that young men aged 17 to 20 are much safer if they cycle than if they drive. And my colleague Sean led uh, another piece of work where we looked at deaths of other road users by the age and sex of the person in charge of the vehicle. And he showed that the rest of us are much safer if young men cycle rather than drive. Now, the first thing to, to notice, and I, I'm not making a political point here, of course, is that uh, for almost every age and, and gender group and travel mode, males have a higher death rate than females. Not saying we're better drivers or anything, just, just saying. Um, but otherwise, it's a pretty similar pattern. This is uh, the pattern for the, oldest, uh, the older age groups. And again, higher in males than females, higher for walking and cycling than for driving. But it does increase considerably compared with younger people, as I say, except for driving. Now, for this one, it's the same data, the same travel survey, but instead of looking at how much time people spent travelling, 
it's how far they travelled. So these are deaths per billion kilometres. And here, what very similar uh, pattern. The, again, it goes up uh, again in the older groups, which I'm not showing here. So again, it's U-shaped for driving and J-shaped for cycling and, and walking. Here, when you're looking at distance, it's actually higher fatality rates in males for pedestrians than for cyclists. But again, there's a lot of overlap. My findings aren't uh, different from other people's. This is a study in the USA. They used the number of trips. So this is deaths per 100 million trips. And it's, um, again, the same U-shape for drivers and for passengers. Sorry, that's supposed to point. I'm supposed to use this. Uh, and again, a J-shape for pedestrians. Not enough cyclists in the USA to look at that. So the actual risk for cycling is really low. There are 26 and a half deaths per billion kilometres, which is one for every 38 kilometres cycled. So if somebody cycles 1,500 kilometres a year, there would be one fatality every 25,000 years for men. And the risks are lower for women, so there'd be one fatality every 36,000 years. Um, so why is it that people think that cycling is so dangerous relative to other things? Well, I blame the media. Um, this is the paper by Alex McMillan from the University of Otago and uh, some colleagues in London. They looked at this discrepancy between public perception and the reality. Um, cycling trips in London doubled over the 20 years, 1992 to 2012. And the proportion of cycle fatalities covered in the local media, they discovered, had increased from 6% in the first three years to 75% in the last three years, while the coverage of motorcycle fatalities remained very low. So what had happened, it wasn't an increase in cycle deaths, it wasn't an increase in the death rate of cyclists, it was an increase in media coverage. Ooh, right, very quickly, community severance, the barrier effect of busy roads. So in 1972, Donald Appleyard and Mark Lintel published this wonderful study they asked the residents of three streets in San Francisco to note everybody they knew as a friend or an acquaintance. Now, these people were all very similar. They'd moved in about 20 years previously. But over the intervening two decades, the amount of traffic in the streets had varied. Uh, one still had light traffic. And there, on average, people had nearly five and a half friends and more than six acquaintances per person. But the traffic had increased considerably in the other two streets. And in the road with heavy traffic, people had on average just over one friend and not even three acquaintances. And this is important because the bigger your social network, the number of people that as you walk to the station or go to the shops or something, you say hello to people that you recognize, people you can exchange favors with, as well as the close family and friends ties, is very important for health. A recent meta-analysis showed where they looked at a whole load of studies and put them together and found that the effect of having a bigger social network was just as important as the benefit of stopping smoking. So this is huge. And of course, here, the more traffic, the less um, people you are seeing. So... Community severance is the barrier effect from transport infrastructure such as motorways or railways or the barrier effect of busy traffic. And I've mentioned the importance of social networks, but it's also the use of streets as social places, places that people can meet and chat, places that children can travel in and play in independently. And independent mobility for children and being allowed to play unsupervised is very important for their mental and physical development and their self-esteem. It's not merely a fact that if they can go to places other people don't need to show for them. And for part of my PhD, I did a, a literature review on the health effects of community sevens. And I found loads of reports and loads of journal papers saying community sevens is bad for health. And not a single study looking at it. And I, we decided this was probably because, although not everything you can measure is important, 
it's difficult to study something if you can't measure it. So we got funding from some research councils to do this big project at UCL to develop a toolkit to measure it. I haven't got time to go through in detail, merely to say there are lots of different tools that are freely downloadable from the website. Uh, they're being used in Chile and in New Zealand and in London and maybe other places in the UK. So there's participatory mapping. Uh, so, uh, a social enterprise called Mapping for Change went and asked people. They went to community centres. They stopped people in the street and said, can we have five minutes of your time if we buy you a coffee? Gave them maps of the area, said, where do you go? How do you get there? Where don't you go? Why not? We developed a household survey. It's a pen and paper survey that people can use so that local communities can use it if they want to. And we've got uh, Sean Scholes has written a, a how to analyze it and a simple program. And, and I've written um, how to do a survey. And it asks people about themselves and about their road and the busy, busiest road near them. But it also asks about things that might stop them walking around their neighbourhood, say a mile or 20 minute walk, like the volume and speed of traffic, air pollution, noise pollution, those sorts of things. Uh, a stated preference survey was giving people options of crossing the road here in these circumstances or there in those circumstances and how far they were prepared to walk or how much time they were prepared to walk to go to a better, uh, thing, uh, better facilities or the amount of money that they'd have to save to go to, to use the worst. And from that, uh, we're now working with Transport for Greater Manchester to develop a valuation tool that local authorities will be able to use to say, community severance here actually is costing money. Uh, the not to be quoted, not yet published, provisional figure is that nationally it comes to 2.8% of GDP or £1,100 per person in the country per year. So we're not talking small amounts. Uh, Ashley Danani and Laura Vaughan in the Bartlett School of the Built Environment did spatial analysis using space syntax, which is about how connected places are. And Ashley also came up with a walkability model for our various different places. And he noticed that community severance occurs where the ability to walk, the potential for walking, so there are enough people with enough places to go that are within walking distance, is high in the same place that traffic is high, Finchie Road being a very good example. We did street audits and we did video surveys looking at where people cross the road and so on. So the toolkit is designed for a wide range of different audiences to be able to use, to, to measure community severance and to look at the different things that they might do. Some are aimed at the local communities, others at researchers or transport professionals. Uh, a recent paper uh, published by Paolo Ancias and others on the team um, found that people's perceptions about traffic volumes and traffic speeds affect each other and it depends on how many heavy goods vehicles there are as well as how much traffic and how the speed of traffic varies during the day and relates to their past experience. And people who perceive the traffic volume as heavy and the traffic speed as fast were more likely to report that the traffic conditions were a barrier to walking locally. And that was often why they avoided the busiest road. And the participants with the worst perceptions of traffic conditions and reported a greater impact on their walking had on average much worse well-being even after adjusting for all sorts of other factors that we know affect people's well-being. So the toolkit is available um, and so are almost all of our publications and of course I need to thank the team. I now have a very few minutes to whiz through the third project on walking speeds of older people. So uh, this is uh, around 2010, there was a news report that there were going to be changes to traffic light timings to increase motor flow, it, motor vehicle flow in London. Now, when you cross the light at, at the standard Pelican uh, crossing, the, the person goes green for six or eight or ten seconds, depending on the width of the road, and that's called the invitation to cross. And then it flashes, meaning that if you're already crossing, you can carry on under a traffic light 
won't turn green for the traffic, but it assumes that you're walking at 1.2 metres per second or 2.7 miles an hour. And studies in a lot of countries have shown that that's not sufficient time, but they've been poor quality studies because they've only studied the people who are actually crossing, never mind people who didn't even attempt it because they knew they couldn't get across. Uh, a sign in New Zealand, it's actually saying 35 kilometre an hour speed limit uh, around the corner because of pedestrians, but sometimes you do feel that you've got to walk at at least 35 kilometres uh, per hour to get across their roads. Anyway, the health survey for England, as, as we mentioned, is an annual survey of a new nationally representative sample of people living in their own homes in England. And in 2005, there was an extra sample of people aged 65 and over. So the results I'm showing you are for the people aged 65 and over, uh, over 3,000 adults who had an interview and had a visit from a nurse, and as part of the nurse visit, were their walking was timed to get their normal walking speed. This chart shows the percentage of people, men in blue and women in red, in each age group, whose normal walking speed was below the 1.2 meters per second, or 2.7 um, miles an hour, that you would need to finish crossing the road before the lights turn uh, green for the traffic. And of the people age six and over who could do this unaided, 76% of men and 85% of women walked more slowly. We published this paper online, uh, it, no, published later in an actual printed journal, there was masses of media coverage. This cartoon appeared in, in the Daily Mail. Uh, there was national, international, local, online, radio, television, uh, print media, masses of coverage. And it was picked up by Living Streets, uh, an NGO to promote walking and to promote pedestrian facilities. And they started this um, campaign called Give Us Time to Cross. So at the moment, as I mentioned, it's 1.2 metres per second, but we showed that men aged 65 and over, and other studies have been done since on nationally representative studies or uh, uh, in Brazil or elsewhere in England, uh, showing very similar findings. So men had an average of 2 miles an hour and women 1.8, whereas you need 2.7. And they were campaigning to reduce the assumed walking speed. To 0.8 meters per second. So it was a very successful campaign. They got more than 10,000 people to write to their MPs asking for three more seconds average crossing time. And in May of the following year, the um, Department for Transport announced consultation on this annual publication that includes uh, traffic signals uh, as part of it. And the Transport Minister promised an urgent review of crossing timing. So what happened? Well, nothing happened to the walking speed that is assumed for Pelican crossings. They said, no, not changing it. But it wasn't all bad news because in 2015, the regulations were pu published saying that no new Pelican crossings can be installed and any new crossing has to be either the countdown sort, so you know exactly how long you've got and you can make your own judgment whether you can get across or not, or the puffin sort, which has a camera, the, the uh, green and red pedestrian signs are here before you cross, there's nothing the other side, which some people find very scary, uh, and it stays red for traffic while you're on the crossing and the uh, camera is detecting you. Obviously, I need to acknowledge my other colleagues. So, uh, another thing that happened as a result of this is that Kilburn Boulder Voices uh, produced this song, uh, which we don't have time to show you, but you can uh, search for Hey Mr. Boris, and it's the first time my research has ever ended up as a song on YouTube. So if we're talking about road danger reduction, which is better than road safety, because with road safety, you have targets like no child 
pedestrian fatalities, well, you can achieve that by having no child pedestrians. And that's not what we want in public health terms. So the best way to reduce fatal and non-fatal injuries is to reduce the road danger, slower speeds, for example. Yes, mitigating the consequences of collisions and falls is important, but that shouldn't be our prime uh, way of reducing injuries. Reducing car use results in more active travel, more physical activity, less pollutants emitted, fewer serious injuries, and fewer inequalities. And it all depends on having spatial planning that doesn't assume or encourage car use. And what more and more people are aspiring to and trying to implement is a transport plan planning hierarchy that has pedestrians at the top and sole use of private vehicles at the bottom. But what we also need is that the funding should match that, because at the moment the funding is the other way around. In, in the UK, most transport planners and some policymakers get this. In New Zealand, it's a bit slower. Uh, sorry, I've just been working on transport and health in New Zealand. So transport's about moving people. It's not inherently about moving cars. This is the amount of road space taken by 69 people on a bus, on bikes, on foot, or in 40 cars, not even 69 cars, which it could often be. So Liam Donaldson, a former chief medical officer, said, the potential benefits of physical activity to health are huge. If a medication existed which had a similar effect, it would be regarded as a wonder drug or miracle cure. Thank you. Is this on? Yes. Thank you, Jenny. Um, we've got a good 10 minutes for questions. Oh, we can watch Hey Boris, but let's see. Um, growing up in Los Angeles, I really um, understood that statistic you gave there of two-thirds covered in tarmac. Not very nice. Do we have a question here? So although the UK has a low fatality rate overall, it has one of the worst uh, ratio uh, of fatalities between <coughs> pedestrians and people cycling and overall fatalities in Western Europe. Um, maybe one of the, you know, the fact that the, the, the pedestrians, uh, sorry, the, yeah, the pedestrian crossings are so uh, fast or not sufficient. But have you studied why, uh, why the UK is, uh, is so dangerous for uh, walking and cycling? It, I think it, it varies very much by country and even by city. So yes, compared with uh, the Netherlands, Denmark, Germany, anywhere that's got really good infrastructure for cycling and walking will have a lower fatality rate. But also, one of the reasons uh, that pedestrians and cyclists appear to be much worse than drivers in this country is because the fatality rate for driving and indeed for car occupancy in general in this country is much lower than almost any other country. It's way lower. And therefore... Um, yeah. So is policy directed too much towards uh, safe, uh, the safety of drivers as opposed to the safety of uh, uh, people walking and cycling? Yes, I mean, I, rather than having airbags, I think that our road fatality rate might be less if there were a, a spike coming out of the driving wheel, centre of the driving wheel, pointing at the driver. I think we might have far fewer collisions, but nobody's prepared to fund a, a randomised trial of that. Um, another reason, just looking at, at our figures for, uh, for this country, one of the reasons that driving has a much lower fatality rate per billion kilometers or uh, per million hours is because uh, the, the biggest distance, the longest distances and the longest time spent traveling is on motorways and dual carriageway, A-way, dual carriageway A-roads. And the figures vary from year to year, but they have a fatality rate between five and nine times lower than general purpose roads, which is where uh, people walk and cycle. If we could repeat our results just looking at deaths 
and the amount of travelling done on general purpose roads, you would find far less discrepancy between um, the different modes. But we can't get any data on how much people travel on different sorts of roads. We know how much we know overall the vehicle kilometres. So for the whole population, you can do those figures. But if you want to look at age and gender, and because what we've shown is that the fatality rates vary far more by how old you are and whether you're male or female than by whether you're walking, cycling, or driving. And I'd love to do that proper comparison just on the sort of roads where you could walk and cycle and not motorways. And I think that partly answers your question. Our motorways are exceedingly safe. And if you drive anywhere else, they have far less lighting, uh, far less um, central reservations and barriers. There are all sorts of things that have been done uh, and gentle curves, uh, all sorts of things that have been done on motorways in this country. And that's where the bulk of the, the distances and the time traveling, although most of the, um, the deaths uh, occur on country roads and close to where you live. Hello. Um, first of all, thank you very much for research in this area. Um, I've uh, been very interested in your work since the launch of the Mobility Toolkit. Um, my question is about how you disseminate this to planners, because uh, from what you said, I, I gather you do some work with the Bartlett School, but what about planners in practice who perhaps trained quite some time ago and are not up to date with developments in transportation and... Thank you. Well, um, we've used various different uh, approaches. We issued invitations very widely to the launch. Um, we actually had to turn people away because the, the room was uh, oversubscribed. Um, we've used the UCL Transport Institute uh, email list, uh, things like the Transport and Health Study Group and um, the International Professional Alliance on Transport and Health. And most of those people are practitioners. Uh, we, we've had articles in trade papers, we've um, uh, given presentations whenever we're asked to a wide range of audiences. Uh, I gave one to Civitas, the, um, which again tends to be mostly transport plans, but if you've got any other suggestions, I'd be very happy to uh, chat. Okay, that would be great, thank you. Thanks very much, Jenny. I was struck by something you said earlier in your talk about the possibility of walking and cycling making my training program unnecessary. So I was just thinking I would cancel my gym subscription, thanks to you. But more specifically, I have come across in the past statements about how a level of exercise needs to exceed a certain threshold of time. Is it 30 minutes in order to be optimally beneficial? Is that no longer the case? No, uh, the previous recommendations were at least 30 minutes, at least five times a day, at least, uh, so at least 30 minutes of moderate activity, uh, at least five times a week, sorry. Uh, and then it was changed to, you could accumulate it in bouts of at least 10 minutes, um, at least 30 minutes per day. Uh, the current recommendations are 150 minutes of moderate intensity activity per week or 75 minutes of vigorous activity or a pro rata mixture of the two. Now, I can't recall whether they still say in bouts of at least 10 minutes, but there have been a number of studies uh, that uh, I've read or seen reported in, in uh, conferences in the last year which have found that it doesn't seem to make any difference whether it's 10 minutes or or not and at the active living and environment symposium in Dunedin in February they were also looking at sedentary behavior and found these were some volunteers who were asked to sit for a certain amount of time and then stand and walk around for a bit of time and they measured things like their blood pressure or uh, their glucose levels or that sort of thing and they found that breaking up sitting down was important so even if you even if these two groups actually spent the same amount of time sitting and the same amount of time standing the people who got up every 30 to 60 minutes for a couple of minutes rather than sitting for six hours and then doing all their standing at once had a better health profile so uh, it's important so you know, so 
everybody, I've been to conferences where everybody gets a standing ovation because they're so keen that everybody should be on their feet and not sitting down. And, I, and I'd like to buy myself a, a standing desk. But there doesn't seem to be a, a need for that 10 minutes. The more you do, the better. But Hi. Um, we know from journey to work data that uh, cycling to work's uh, predominantly a male activity and walking to work's predominantly a female activity. Yeah. In all, all of the sort of things I've heard, we lump cycling and walking together as active uh, transport. Um, to the extent that policies that might improve uptake might be different for men and women, do you think it's useful to, to lump them together into active transport, or we, should we consider them separately? Were you at that conference in Delhi? <laughs> no, uh, because there was somebody from Living Streets, uh, Taroa, there who was making very similar uh, points. I think there are some things that I, I hope that the statements I made do apply equally to walking and cycling. But yes, when you're studying them, they're different people doing different journeys, um, and there are different barriers and, and facilitators and different things needed. So I, I'm sure you're right that anybody studying why people do or don't and how you might increase it um, definitely needs to take that sort of thing into into account. Thanks, Jenny, for a really interesting talk. That was really uh, fascinating. I have one question, because we are speaking a little bit about policy and different accident rates in different countries. I'm wondering if anybody has looked into kind of the legal situation around accidents and the link to uh, road accidents. Because one thing I've noticed living in different countries is just how incredibly different drivers behave towards pedestrians. For example, I lived in America for a while, and I noticed as soon as you approach the, the curb, like, cars slow down, and then I later learned... Um, Which bit of America? <laughs> well, I thought a, you were getting they, they put their foot on the accelerator. No, no, there was in California, for example, and uh, somebody told me that the legal situation in America is such that if you have an accident with a pedestrian as a car driver, you are in far more trouble than in other countries because you really have to prove that it's not your mistake, and apparently that's really difficult in America. Whereas, for example, I've, I found here you're in much more danger from the, from the drivers. Uh, my personal impression, I don't know if it's accurate, but I'm just wondering if there's a systematic study, because obviously it would make sense that the kind of you know, legal consequences would influence people's behavior. Thank you. Thank you. There, uh, that's not been my experience in, in, in the States, but um, perhaps the only bit of California I've been to is Los Angeles, so yeah, I rest my case. Um, Certainly, there are countries and there are states which have, it's called strict liability. And so, for example, in Vancouver, if you get anywhere near uh, uh, the curb, uh, cars will screech to a halt because if they hit a pedestrian, uh, they will be carted off to prison until they can prove it was not their fault. Um, whereas the assumption here is very much victim blaming from policies mostly made by people who associate status with sitting behind the wheel of a big car. Um, so, yes, there are legal differences, there are attitudinal differences. It's a lot better here than in New Zealand, uh, with a couple, except for Christchurch and, and Wellington, um, where if you're not in a car, you're not really worth uh, acknowledging at, at all. Um, and... Yes, there, uh, there have been some studies looking at differences across policies and laws. Uh, um, with my editor hat, we published a paper um, some months ago from somewhere in Eastern Europe, I think, where they looked at what happened before and after. They introduced a whole raft of laws, and it seemed to make a huge difference. So... There, there are things that can be done. I mean, a, a, a speed limit of 20 miles an hour is the default in all residential streets in the country would be a, a very good start. Even if people, not everybody drove at 20 miles an hour, they don't all drive at 30 now either. But uh, it would be much cheaper and much easier to get into people's consciousness than having some areas with a 20 mile an hour speed limit and some areas... Uh, with 30 and somewhere different streets are different things. Hello, as an elderly driver, I find the, uh, the motorists as a whole 
are very courteous. And I'm not sure that you need a longer time on pedestrians' crossings, because once people are on the crossing, motorists wait perfectly patiently. Uh, the biggest risk to me as a elderly motorist is motorized uh, um, what you call them? carriages for invalid, invalid carriages on pavements, which are totally disregarding of anybody else. Um, and the other risk, of course, is cyclists on pavements, which ought to be strictly forbidden. Um, the, uh, um, uh, yes, that's it. Thank you. Yes, well, I'm glad they wait for you. While I was being interviewed by, uh, as part of the Living Streets campaign, uh, it wasn't staged, but behind me, the, uh, or uh, an in-camera shot, there was this elderly gentleman who got halfway across, the lights changed, and the car started, and he was abandoned in the middle, and there wasn't even an island. And a lot of people that we talk to, uh, and that Living Streets talk to, say that, A, there's the deterrent effect of knowing that you can't get across in the available time, and B, that often drivers aren't as courteous as they obviously are to you, and they will sit there revving their in engines and being very sort of threatening. Uh, so it is the deterrent effect that we're trying to address. Cyclists need proper provision where it's safe for them to go. There are roads near where I live where I think in 21 years I have once seen a pedestrian. The road is a nightmare. I would say, uh, now I'm more experienced, I would cycle on the road, but I used to cycle on, on the pavement. It should be perfectly okay to cycle on the pavement provided you give um, precedence and give way to pedestrians and walk your cycle where it's not appropriate to be uh, cycling. One pedestrian was killed by a bike last year. A thousand pedestrians were killed by, no, no it's not a thousand, 500, whatever, but I haven't got the number. More than one. Well, anyway, you know, it's, okay. uh, it's what hits the news. Thank you, Jenny. I think we need to stop there. I want to thank you all for coming and let's thank Jenny again. Oh. For